Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hong Kong is in many ways like the mirror on the wall in Snow White. Hong Kong was a harbinger of uh, what's to come in terms of a much more assertive uh, and, and much more authoritarian China. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, the head of the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. For today's episode, uh, I'm privileged to be joined by Kevin Yam. Uh, Kevin is, among other things, a senior fellow at Georgetown University Centre for Asian Law and editor-at-large of the uh, Mekong Review, a fantastic publication, uh, Asian literary publication. But Kevin's been in the headlines uh, recently in Australia and indeed internationally. Kevin is an Australian citizen. He's a lawyer uh, with extensive professional experience, uh, particularly in Hong Kong. He's uh, a Master of Law student at the moment at the University of Melbourne uh, as well. But he's been in the headlines because he is one of eight uh, activists, current or, or former democracy activists from Hong Kong, who have been accused of, of breaching China's, uh, or should I say, uh, Hong Kong's national security law. And so I think it's quite fitting that here at the National Security College, we're having a conversation about the future of Hong Kong, uh, what the national security law means for Hong Kong, and really your broader thoughts, Kevin, about where Hong Kong has been in the past few tumultuous years, and where its future lies, and perhaps if there are any lessons that can be drawn from your own, I think, pretty harrowing personal experience as an Australian, uh, we'd be interested to hear them. So welcome to the well, podcast. Welcome, Rory. It's uh, it's a real privilege to be uh, invited to this podcast. Look, let's begin the conversation with perhaps a little bit about yourself, yep. um, your background. Uh, many of our listeners, uh, Australian or internationally, will have read uh Newspaper articles or media reports about uh, the uh, the charge, the accusation that's been made against you, and in fact the um, uh, you know the, the cruel fact that a, a sum of money, effectively a bounty, uh, has been put uh, against your name by the um, the Hong Kong police. But they probably don't know a lot about you, right. As a person, as an Australian, as a lawyer. So where to start? Maybe a few thoughts about your own personal journey. Okay. I was born in Hong Kong and I came to Australia uh, as a 10-year-old in September 1986. 
The first game of AFL I ever watched was the 1986 grand final between Hawthorne and Carlton and Hawthorne won, and that's how I ended up becoming a Hawthorne supporter. So you're really a Victorian. When we say you're an Australian, you're a Victorian. <laughs> well, I don't know whether that's a compliment or an insult, really. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I grew up in, in Melbourne. Um, unlike a lot of Hong Kong migrants, I didn't grow up wealthy because um, – for various reasons, my father had troubles with the law and ended up spending some time in prison. And uh, I was raised in fairly difficult circumstances. And I was lucky to have done well academically, ended up doing commerce and law at the University of Melbourne, uh, commerce to a master's level and law to a bachelor's honours level. Then at the end of that, I uh, it was year 2000, 2001, uh, the Australian dollar was at its record low. Uh, there were a number of English law firms hiring uh, trainee solicitors uh, for their Hong Kong office, and they were giving opportunities to uh, spend some time working in London as part of the training as well. So I grabbed that opportunity and ended up working in Hong Kong, thinking I would, uh, I would be there for five, six, seven years and then come back. But as it was, I ended up staying for 21 years, of which um, 17 years of it was as a qualified solicitor. And during that time, I mostly acted for big end of town uh, entities, doing a mixture of commercial litigation and financial services regulatory investigations, uh, acting on the defense side. And, and then through a series of I guess, accidents, I ended up getting involved in Hong Kong civil society, be becoming a rule of law, judicial independence, and democracy activist since 2014. Uh, funnily enough, I dropped out of that around 2018. And for a while, I was a, I, I was a food vlogger in Hong <laughs> Kong. Uh, but, but then the 2019 protests happened, and at the time it became apparent that there was a shortage of people with fluent English skills who can face international media. So I took uh, some of that. But even with that, in the year 2020, when national security law in Hong Kong came into effect, I stopped all my activities until I came back in mid-2022. At that point, I felt that I had so many of my friends in Hong Kong in jail and some of them are in exile and a lot of them have been silenced, um, even though I've long retired, so to speak, from civil society. Uh, I felt that I had a duty living in a free country to speak up for a city that really gave me a career and gave me everything. You, you, you moved back to Australia. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I moved back and it was after I moved back that I started speaking up again about Hong Kong issues. I also spoke up uh, and written a number of articles on Australia-China relationship in mainstream Australian media. And uh, I think the things that presumably got me into, quote-unquote, trouble with Hong Kong are a mixture of meetings with Australian MPs, uh, talking about Hong Kong, meeting with the Foreign Minister Penny Wong, talking about Hong Kong, and probably most importantly, from China's perspective, having testified before the U.S. Congress uh, via video link while I'm in Australia about Hong Kong. So let's come back to, I guess, 
your own experience of of activism, perhaps at a future sure. part of the conversation. But let's before then hear a little bit more about Hong Kong, uh, because the Hong Kong that you worked in, that you lived in, that you loved for so many years, uh, I think some of us who have watched the events of the past few years and the way that you know ultimately the hand of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party is trying to change Hong Kong, uh, see potentially a, a kind of an, an erasure, a, a sort of a, a, a rubbing out of an extraordinary society, an extraordinary uh, emblem of, uh, of life in, in Asia, a, a, a vibrant life with a, a strong uh, current of democracy to it. What is the Hong Kong that you know, remember, love, have lived in? Describe it. I liked the sort of wheeling, dealing culture of Hong Kong. There was always a very can-do culture. I liked the fact that it was my home and it was one of the freest cities in Asia. You can basically say anything you want. Uh, In fact, I would say that um, before the national security law, there was probably more freedom of speech in Hong Kong than there is in Australia, given the the existence of fairly pro-plaintive defamation laws (laughs) in Australia, right? And I was drawn to Hong Kong originally, I think, you would never have gone i would never have gone back to hong kong if i wasn't a china optimist right mm-hmm. it was a time when you know in the early 2000s china was continuing its opening up it was looking for people with international educational experiences people who had both fluent english and chinese and i i think i counted myself as one of the optimists about the future of hong kong and the future of china so for me to see how it's gone after 2019 and how rapidly it's gone down, uh, it's just gut-wrenching. And can you um, say a little again for listeners who already with the passage of time may not have a full understanding of the events of really the past five years or even the past nine or ten years in Hong Kong's history – how would you describe that deterioration? What brought it about? Uh, what was, if you like, the relative roles of uh, the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party, Hong Kong authorities, other players in that change? Uh, and how inevitable was that change? Did it, did it have to be like that? Just a, a quick summary of, of how you see events. I think if one were to look back, uh, things probably started being set slowly in motion as far back as 2003. Back in 2003, there was an early attempt to impose national security law of some sort in Hong Kong. And at the time, half a million Hong Kongers marched in the streets protesting against that. And uh, people power actually succeeded at the time. But after that, what we then started seeing was Beijing starting to pour a lot of money and resources into a slow takeover of local Hong Kong politics. So they uh, they put in a lot of money into growing pro-Beijing political parties, into uh, hosting a lot of local events, into taking over, uh, you know, building by building, block by block, um, you know, owners, management incorporated, uh 
so that that controls access to amenities in local areas and making it hard for pro-democracy candidates to speak to the public. And that stuff has been happening in, at a subterranean level for many years. And and then in 2014, uh, China issued a white paper on Hong Kong's one country, two systems, where they said that they would exercise complete comprehensive jurisdiction over Hong Kong and that instead of separation of powers, the three branches of government should cooperate with each other. And, and then there was a decision on the lack of democracy going forward in Hong Kong. And that sparked off protests that are now known as the Umbrella Movement. Um, and in a way, that's where I got – events around that was where I got my start in civil society in Hong Kong. But even after that, civil society was quite vibrant in Hong Kong. And if anything, it grew out of the Umbrella Movement. Um, but Beijing was closing in. They were disqualifying candidates in legislative council elections. They were pouring even more money uh, into the electoral system to make it very difficult uh, for pro-democracy candidates to complete, uh, compete. And the frustrations grew. But if you ask me, was it all inevitable that we get to where we are? Not necessarily, because I think back to even as late as 2017, 2018, when there was a slow crackdown going on, um, some of the most popular TV shows in Hong Kong were mainland Chinese productions. Um, a lot of even self-professed pro-democracy youngsters would go to Shenzhen or Guangzhou in southern China to uh, to spend, to eat, to do all sorts of things. And if China had a bit more patience, it may well be that in 10, 15, 20 years, there would have been a lot more assimilation happening anyway. But then they probably went one step too far when they tried to introduce in 2019 some extradition laws in Hong Kong, which potentially allowed for extradition of people from Hong Kong into China. And that was, and that was the catalyst, that was the, the protest in China. That's right. And that yeah. was the catalyst. I mean, yeah. at the start, a million people turned up, then two million people turned out up. Of out, a, of, out of a population of, of seven yeah, million. And, and you saw that Beijing didn't really give ground on things that mattered. And, and then the police started going completely violent on civilians. And that was, I mean, people, some people only ever see the violent protesters, but violence don't happen out of a vacuum. And there were many indiscriminate beatings and tear gas and rubber bullet incidents before uh, violence actually erupted in terms of the whole protest movement. And what was amazing about that movement was that a lot of moderates like myself, uh, who would normally have been aghast with any form of violence, um, uh, I knew a lot of middle class and upper middle class people who stuck with the frontline protesters. And and I think the last straw for Beijing was that there was a set of district elections in November 2019 where they thought the middle classes of Hong Kong would turn against the protest movement. Uh, but in fact, the pro-democracy camp won a comprehensive victory. They won 80% of the seats. And, and I think that was probably the last straw for Beijing. They thought, well, 
if if even the elites in Hong Kong, the professionals in Hong Kong, the moderates in Hong Kong are are offside, then then crackdown is the only option for them. And then it came. And I think that um, you know your own experience, I'm sure, was replicated across many other uh, middle class, of course, Hong Kongers, people who wouldn't necessarily have turned to a life of activism or or, or protest. Um, what do you think? The the choices were that, that the Chinese leadership had. I mean, what what were their strategic objectives, and how would they, do you think, weigh the cost benefit analysis of what they've done, which incidentally has has alienated so much of international opinion? I think they had always hoped that they can turn Hong Kong into a more sophisticated version of Macau. Where I mean, for your audience's information, Macau also runs by uh, so-called one country, two systems. But Macau already had national security laws very early on, already uh, were uh, Macanese people were already denied democracy very early on. And there were all sorts of restrictions on uh, civil and political freedoms very early on. And I think uh, China was hoping for an obedient Hong Kong that can still make money for them. And to be honest, looking back, I kind of feel that they could still have done that as late as 2017, 2018, uh, if they were much more patient and didn't push their agenda so quickly and aggressively, uh, and they allowed sort of natural cultural assimilation to happen. I mean, one, one has got to remember that around that 2017-2018 period, um, the pro-democracy movement was being ground down by uh, the superior resources of Beijing and by some what what would now be considered low-level repression. And uh, uh, people were still watching their mainland Chinese TV shows and so on. So I would have thought that that was a golden opportunity for China to assimilate Hong Kong, but they didn't have the patience. They wanted it to happen immediately, and they pushed what they pushed in 2019 and onwards. Yeah, and I would I would observe that coincides with some of the <clears throat> some of the overconfidence and, and and hubris I think of a lot of China's overreach internationally at that. That's right. At that time, and again, just to put one final point of context in for our listeners before we we really turn to questions about the future. Sure. Um, How do you see the, you know, this this savage deterioration of Hong Kong's situation in the context of the the promises and the agreements that were made at the time of the handover from from Britain in 1997? Um, I think Hong Kong is in many ways like the mirror on the wall in Snow White, <laughs> okay? And um, and Hong Kong was a harbinger of uh, what's to come in terms of a much more assertive uh, and, and much more authoritarian China. Two pieces of fallout from that that I see in the strategic environment now, one, one is um, a sense uh, among many, and I would point particularly to, if you like, a kind of middle ground in global affairs like like Europe, um, a sense that China can't be trusted with treaty agreements. Mm. 
because it's breached. That's right. Very clear international legal undertakings. But secondly, a message to Taiwan, and I think the um, the shifts we've seen in Taiwanese public opinion over the years uh, a recognition among so much of the Taiwanese population that, that one country, two systems is going to be bad for them. Um, in many ways, I can't see that as having happened if it hadn't been for China's repression in Hong Kong. Oh, that's right. Um, I think it's fair to say that in particular with Taiwan, you've got a situation where thanks to it having a democratic system, it became impossible politically for even the most pro-Beijing of its political parties to be backing a one country, two systems formula for Taiwan. And if the only goal is control, then I guess there would be voices in Beijing that say, well, we've got what we want now with Hong Kong. But if it's about the the court of global public opinion, and if it's about questions of the future of Taiwan and the sort of international support that Taiwan might be able to muster, historians might say that um, China's made some pretty serious mistakes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hong Kong, how shall I put it? I think Hong Kong is a very hard place to stuff up. Um, Unlike a lot of societies around the world, Hong Kong hasn't had much of a history of class conflicts, at least since the late 1960s. It's one of those cities where even the poorest of the poor would, in Western political terms, tend to be uh, in the center right of the political spectrum on how much help they want from the government and how much justice they want economically. And if that's the society, you would have thought it's pretty laissez-faire. I mean, we can argue the toss about whether it's a fair society or not, but from a ruler's perspective, that's a pretty that's a pretty easy city to govern. And for them to be able to stuff that up is just a measure of its monumental incompetence. We'll be right back. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I think for many international visitors, including, um, if you like, former international visitors like me, it's probably a place where you'd say that the food is so good 
um, that it's pretty hard to achieve public dissatisfaction. Oh, yeah. I mean, the food is fantastic in Hong Kong. That's one of the things I really miss. Look, I know that Melbourne is is a food capital of Australia, but really, at least when it comes to Asian food, I miss Hong Kong. We're going to avoid controversies over sport <laughs> and, and food at this point, Kevin, and we are going to turn to the future. Sure. So, look um, – there are lots of serious topics we could talk about, and I'm not going to dwell on your own personal situation sure. in this conversation. I think there are other avenues to have that conversation, uh, and I know it must be a pretty harrowing time for you, but you're very conscious of concerns about the future of Hong Kong. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you um, how you see the years ahead playing out um, on a couple of dimensions. Uh, firstly, I'd like to actually look at the economics of it. Because, as you said, so much of the success story of Hong Kong in recent decades was as a centre for finance and business um, and, and such an extraordinary economic success story in its own right. Um, but, of course, the political repression that we've seen in recent years is going to have economic consequences. What do you think those are? I think – look, I know there are a lot of voices uh, – amongst people who care about democracy in Hong Kong who would say, oh, Hong Kong is already finished. But I think the story is actually a lot more nuanced than that. I, I think Hong Kong risks being on its way to being finished, but it's built up a lot in past years before the crackdown happened. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of what we are going to see are marginal changes where we see uh, rather than sort of Hong Kong uh, exploding, I think we'll see Hong Kong imploding. Uh, so, for example, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a case of big international institutions all shutting up shop in Hong Kong suddenly. It would be more a case of whenever they have a new headcount or whenever an old headcount resigns, uh, they would put that new headcount somewhere else. It would be uh, issues to do with uh, a lot of talent having left Hong Kong and a lot of overseas or even mainland Chinese talent not being willing to go to Hong Kong to work. It would be issues such as, for example, in the legal profession, um, a lot of good successful lawyers not being willing to become judges. And that would have a – leaving aside all the talk about political repression – the mere fact that good successful practitioners have in recent years become increasingly reluctant to become judges would have an impact on the quality of uh, legal reasoning, the quality of Hong Kong as an international dispute resolution center. Again, none of that stuff is going to die overnight, but it's just going to gradually sort of uh, get eaten away. And I will come back to judicial independence in a moment, but in terms of economics, you're talking about a kind of long-term structural decline then rather than an instant collapse. That's and and right. that means that it's salvageable. It, as time passes, it would become increasingly unsalvageable because it's a bit like The Lord of the Rings, at least the book version, right? Uh, not talking about the film version where everyone lives happily ever after. In the book version, we saw that the forces of Saruman had so much time and had to so ruin the Shire that by the time the hobbits first liberated the Shire, it was, it was, it was yeah. not the same thing anymore. And 
I think the longer the current situation continues in Hong Kong, uh, the more we might reach that point of no return. The um, the question then of uh, really the rule of law in mm. Hong Kong and judicial independence. You've touched on it briefly, but I'd like to go into that a little bit a little bit sure. further. Uh, how do you see the future? of that. And in particular, I want to go to a question in a moment about, um, for example, the fact that um, there are a number of uh, very senior former Australian High Court judges who are on the um, the Court of Final Appeal there, uh, and that poses some pretty interesting questions. But how do you see uh, the future of the rule of law and judicial independence in Hong Kong? I think if we look at some of the Hong Kong governments and its legal professions, roadshows, um, around the world in the past year or so, what they're trying to do, and w- without them putting it in so many words, is to try and say to the world, look, we are kind of a little bit like Singapore. Uh, yeah, maybe we're a bit poor on human rights, but on all the commercial stuff, we're okay. And I think that's what they're trying to say. But I think there are a number of differences. I mean, I'm not a Singapore expert, and it's not for me to talk about Singapore, but at least when it comes to Hong Kong, we can see that, as I've said earlier, successful lawyers uh, increasingly unwilling to become judges, unlike in Singapore where successful lawyers do still join Mm. the bench. So that wouldn't just have an impact on political cases. That would have an impact on commercial cases as well. We're going to see increasingly that um, as the judiciary risks becoming more mediocre, it means that the legal profession that uh, appears before that judiciary would also uh, risk becoming increasingly mediocre because the smartest geniuses of the world, if they have it relatively easy before a group of increasingly mediocre judges are increasingly themselves not going to be as sharp as they used to be, right? So so when people talk about the rule of law, I think um, I don't see how Hong Kong can become another Singapore on that front, um, especially given that Hong Kong remains a very expensive city to be litigating in, to be doing commercial transactions in. And we're also seeing increasingly that international businesses are no longer using Hong Kong law or using Hong Kong courts or arbitration tribunals as uh, the governing law jurisdiction. And that's also going to have an impact on the amount of international work that goes through the Hong Kong system and thus having an impact on the rule of law in Hong Kong in terms of the quality of justice and the quality of legal services that you're going to get going forward. Let's extend that conversation to, I guess, thinking about the the very law that you are um, charged with with breaching, the um, sure. Hong Kong's national security law. Yep. Uh, what does this law effectively mean, including for individuals um, living outside Hong Kong? Because uh, one article of the law covers offences uh, by uh, – you know, non-permanent residents of Hong Kong outside Hong Kong territory. Uh, and of course, uh, you and a number of others living overseas have been charged uh, un- under that law. So uh, I- explain again for a sort of a general audience sure. what the law means 
um, and what the implications of that law have, again, for Hong Kong's reputation. So the national security law in Hong Kong bans things like uh, secession, subversion of state power, uh, and foreign inc- uh, what they call collusion with foreign yeah, which which you're accused exactly. of exactly. Right? Are um, we are we colluding right now? I'm not going to ask you to answer that question. But um, <laughs> it's it, how is this defined? Uh, it's whatever they say it is, really. Um, and well, let's put it this way: we have a, a piece of law where. A number of cases have gone to trial and a number of cases are currently going to trial. And we have the Secretary for Security in Hong Kong government boasting about there being a 100% conviction rate on national security-related cases. And I think in many ways that's about as much as one needs to know when it comes to the the reach of this law and how draconian it's been and how it's been applied. And in the case of people like me, uh, the things that they accuse me of are all things that I've done whilst being an Australian citizen, living in Australia, exercising my rights in Australia. But they're they're claiming that they've got uh, universal jurisdiction over everyone. And one of the interesting things about this is I think uh, with them going after the eight of us, it shows an ugly ethno-nationalist side to China as well because, quite frankly, there are all sorts of NGOs and and think tanks and the like where there are white guys that have spoken out much more vociferously than any of us have, but China doesn't go after them. They go after us. They think that just because we are ethnically Chinese that they own us. So against that uh, really pretty frightening backdrop, um, what would be your view on, and again, you know, I understand you may not be able to express this in, in, in um, extensive terms, but what would be your view on foreign judges from democracies who uh, have chosen to uh, un- un- undertake, you know, very senior roles in the uh, judicial system in Hong Kong, and, and for example, uh, as we mentioned earlier, four uh, former High Court judges from Australia who are on the Court of uh, Final Appeal in Hong Kong. How do you see their role, um, and if you like, their decisions sitting alongside uh, some very questionable laws like the National Security Law? I think I should start by saying that I really respect and admire the judges, uh, the overseas judges who choose to sit in Hong Kong. I think they do it with the best of intentions. Uh, Quite a few of them have repeatedly said that they feel that they're there to support the continued judicial independence in Hong Kong. Uh, What I would say to that is that, one, um, I think a lot of the judges in Hong Kong might genuinely believe that they're uh, independent in terms of no one tapping them on the shoulder, telling them what to rule. But um, the societal and political setup in Hong Kong is now as such that I think it's very hard for them not to be affected and influenced by that. So there is a question mark over independence, not necessarily as a criticism of the Hong Kong judges themselves, but it's just the environment they're in. Then there is the problem of, you know, 
judicial independence is a subset of the rule of law. It's a necessary ingredient, but it's not a sufficient condition. So you can have the most independent of judges, but if they have to adjudicate on the most draconian of laws, then there's actually not much they can do about it. And query what's the point of overseas eminent judges potentially being involved in any of that. And in fact, they probably won't get much of an opportunity because they'll unlikely be designated national security judges. Then the final point is, I think even where overseas judges potentially make a difference, and in fact, there's been a case a year or so ago involving former Chief Justice Gleason. There was a recent case involving Justice Gummo, where they did make a difference in non-national, non-national security but politically sensitive cases. But immediately after that, prosecutors or the Hong Kong government had sought to take steps to white ant the effects of those judgments. So taking, taking all of that together, I mean, what I would say is I hope that the judges who decide to continue, they uh, continue to be clear-eyed about it. And I hope that on a, I guess, on a more emotional level, they will think of people like me who learn all about rule of law and judicial independence in Australia, but um, have now got a bounty on my head and are under threat of being disbarred by the Hong Kong legal profession for espousing values that I've learned in Australia. Values that were very much at the heart of your own legal education. Exactly. So this, from what I hear, you seem to be saying, and please correct me if I'm verbaling you, um, but this is a matter, uh, at one level, this is a matter of of judgment and conscience for those uh, eminent Australians. Would you also say that it's something that the Australian government should take an interest in? Oh, definitely. Um, Look, again, uh, don't get me wrong. I think um, we're dealing with a group of very rightfully very well-respected and eminent people here, and we shouldn't rush to be casting judgment on them and telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. But the reality is, whether it's the English judges or the Australian judges or the Canadian judge, uh, they're not just lending their own individual reputations to Hong Kong. They're lending their home country's reputation to the rule of law and judicial independence to Hong Kong. And to the extent that they now are being used in a way by the regime to say, oh, look, everything is fine with Hong Kong, then that should be something that the Australian government or the English government or the Canadian government should take an interest in. We've talked about the Australia-China relationship a little bit obliquely in this conversation, but let's bring it to the foreground as we we, uh, have to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, And so, of course parallel with the deterioration in Hong Kong's uh, situation, we've seen a very turbulent time in Australia-China relations. We've seen, however, in the past year or two, something of a stabilisation in that relationship. And I guess the way I see it at the moment is that uh, on the one hand, the Australian government is looking to prioritise that stabilisation, but to do it in ways that do not uh, Mm. breach Australia's 
values, Australia's national identity, and certainly in ways that don't go against Australia's uh, broader interests. Yes. So it's an extraordinary and difficult task, I suspect. That's right. Um, so if you look at that situation and then you think about what an Australian government today or in the near future can realistically do uh, in the face of Hong Kong's predicament and uh, in terms of assuring an Australian like you that your rights are being protected, what would be your advice? I think there are a number of things. First of all, and I know it might sound unusual coming from me given my current situation, I think it's important that the Australian government continues to engage with Beijing. Uh, it would be rich of me sitting in a free country now being well supported and protected by both government and friends to say that uh, there's, uh, all engagement should cease when we've still got Cheng Lei and uh, Yang Hengjun uh, stuck in China in prison. Detained. That's right. And so that's the first point. The second point is I think whilst we're engaging, we should stand by our principles and we should make sure that when we look at this whole formula about agree where we can and disagree where we must, we need to take the bit about disagree where we must seriously. And so far, I think across the political spectrum, um, I, th I think while the tone might be different here and there, um, the two parties have done a fairly good job at that. Um, in terms of Hong Kong specifically, um, I understand that there's no appetite across the political divide in Australia for any immediate sanctions against Hong Kong or Chinese officials. But I think it's worth um, investigation work being done now on what Hong Kong or Chinese officials that one might potentially consider sanctioning one day, uh, what connections they've got with Australia in terms of family, in terms of assets, so that we make sure that if one day the political and the, uh, and the uh, global environment changes, that we would be imposing targeted and effective changes, uh, sorry, targeted and effective sanctions. And we wouldn't just be willy-nilly randomly imposing sanctions like Russia does on a whole bunch of Australians, which is really water off a duck's back. So we want effective sanctions rather than just sanctions for their own sake. Then I think finally, it's all about um, facilitating more um, Hong Kongers to be able to come here. Uh, we've got the right democratic values. We've got, in many cases, professional skills that we can bring to Australia. And finally, I think from an Australian perspective, we should look at whether there's anything we can do uh, in terms of the financial sector to take a bit of a slice of... Uh, the, the financial work that is slowly being lost to Hong Kong. So, Kevin, that's a uh, that's a pretty serious and practical agenda you've you've set there, and I'm hoping that you and friends and colleagues will continue to 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 monitor how we're performing as a nation um, against those against those kinds of expectations. I want to thank you for being so um, forthright in this conversation. Um, I want to thank you for your, your candour, but also for your personal courage. Thank you. And, and your good humour. Thank um, you very so much. Thank you, Kevin. Go to Hawks. <laughs> <laughs>